Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having conversations with the brightest and best minds I can find to help inspire all of us to make amazing products, amazing product teams, and amazing product companies. If you like the sound of that, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can sign up to the newsletter, check out some of my other episodes with thought leaders and practitioners, and find the podcast on your favourite podcast app so you can make sure you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we ask ourselves, how can we get ourselves to product market fit and not be one of the 95% of startups that fail? How can we make sure we get a coherent early customer profile and make sure we're not stymied in our attempts to cross the chasm? And why are we all pricing our products too cheaply? And how can we get some of that lovely money off the table and into our company's pockets instead? For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Maya Valle. Maya is a globally recognized growth and go-to-market advisor and practitioner and an up-and-coming author who started out working for the Ministry of Agriculture, counting people's pigs and cows before moving into marketing and realizing it wasn't just the farmers that had to deal with bullshit. She's since gone the whole hog on growth marketing and built a stellar career, advising and mentoring 350 companies how to smash their go-to-market plans, achieve product market fit, and be part of the 5% that win. She's here tonight to talk about her new book, Go-to-Market Strategist, for which she interviewed over 100 people about their go-to-market strategies, and I'm hoping she left out the 95 or so that didn't make it. Hi, Maya. How are you tonight? Jason, first of all, I'm totally embarrassed about the intro because this cow and pig story <laughs> was something that I did when I was 16, right? So everybody had a shitty job or two when they started out. But it did make me wonder, you know, that I want to do something big in my life. I don't want to be stuck in this ministry of agriculture, like phoning <laughs> farmers if they reported their livestock. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's a part of my drive. So thanks for mentioning it. <laughs> but nevertheless, for the last year, yeah, I have been like literally in a monastery. So I've been researching these go-to-market secrets because I was on a mission to just like, you know, untackle the big mystery of my previous science, which was growth hacking. And this was a science of fast experimentation. And for that, you need big data samples. And if you don't have them, boy, you're in trouble. So everybody told you that you need product market feed, but nobody ever told you how to get there. So I took this very seriously, and that was my mission in the last year. Well, there you go. So it sounds like you've come out the other side of that, and you're now ready to come back into and be assimilated back into society. Is that fair to say? Uh, no, unfortunately, the story is much more sad. So I live in a village now. We just bought like a beautiful villa here with a swimming pool, and I'm here like in the countryside. And one of my neighbors who's like 70, she started to invite me to visit a supermarket and a graveyard with her. So after I experienced that of being invited to a freaking graveyard, um, I felt that it is time to return into civilization. Well, whatever you need to do to get there, right? Outcomes over outputs. So from the top, I'd say first things first, but it feels like we've covered a few things already, but too much. We were oversharing. We were definitely oversharing. It's okay. We love that sort of thing here. But wherever we are, first, second, third, things third, by day, you are many, many things as per your impressive LinkedIn profile, but you're primarily the founder of Growth Lab, your own consultancy firm. So what problems are you solving for the world and for your clients with Growth Lab? So this day, I am more of a mummy for my ninjas. Um, I'm running a team of 10 people um, that we are working together for the book launch. I have some fantastic people in my team. 
So Laura from Product-Led Institute, Ognian that used to lead growth at CXL Institute and a lot of young talents. So I think that we are in great formulation for the launch. So I'm literally babysitting all days and nights long. But nevertheless, I think that, you know, teamwork is dream work. So yeah, this keeps me busy these days. But nevertheless, in terms of consultancy, this is my individual take on this, right? In the majority of companies that I work with, we have tech founders and we have people who are really good with the product, but not necessarily that good in business development, in marketing. And then they are trying to make all sorts of shortcuts as for hiring some agencies. And you know how agencies work. It's usually like a bunch of juniors that are dealing with those smaller accounts. And I do think that the thing is failing radically on the strategy. And what is the strategy? The strategy is intelligent response on the circumstances, right? How to get the best out of this, how to play to win. And this plan is usually in founders' heads. And just like after you talk with a customer or two, you get these incredible insights in how to shape your go-to-market strategy. So instead of outsourcing it as far you might feel cringe about selling, can you identify yourself as an introvert or whatnot? I much prefer that those people who have absolutely savvy skills learn a thing or two about marketing and sales. So my work is pretty much education and empowerment work. Then that they try to educate somebody in the marketing agency, what is like AI recognition technology for image detect from the the satellite pictures. I think we have a better shot doing this this way. So you're very much, like you say, trying to bring the marketing knowledge and the skills that they need to either develop or enhance at their side, rather than just getting them to offload it all to you. But does that always work? Or do you find or have you found that out of those 350 companies, for example, that maybe there are just some people that just don't get it, can't get it, and they always need some kind of support? I am not against the support, but I think that you are up to just like hire the best people and understand and control their work after you have actually done it. So whatever founder that hasn't done a sales call or customer discovery call or like spent a day on a support, I don't think that they are in a best shape mentally to manage somebody who would potentially outsource this. So I do think that just like having a crisp of a job is important in order to execute it extremely well. And something else is true when it comes to those things. I mean, not everybody is for everything, right? So you can pair up with a co-founder, with a partner, with like a mentor, with a consultant or whoever. Just like some things are essential and they are strategically important to keep in your company. And sales and business development are these things, right? So as a founder, you shouldn't be taking this lightly because otherwise you will be dependent and completely dependent on somebody else's will and resources. And that's not the future that I would want to live. I guess you could also argue it's pretty difficult for someone who doesn't have those skills to hire a good person that has those skills, like you know, bring in that lieutenant or whatever to absolutely come and run it. Like You need some kind of guidance and initial prep work. But then once you've got that prep work, you can get the person and you can also evaluate them and understand whether they're doing a good job or not, right? Well said. Absolutely well said. And I do think that this learning part is so much quicker if you are doing legit customer research. But you know how it is with customer research. Everybody knows that they should do it, but nobody's doing this. It's like freaking flossing dirty. <laughs> but 
like I had this brilliant example. So I was consulting to a company that makes like cooling system for autonomous vehicles. And there are maybe like 50 clients in the world that will buy for them, right? And they were stuck on this idea that they would do like hours of desktop research and hire a PR consulting firm for making event plan for them. And I was like, listen, you engineer, you are working already with five of the people who are decision makers here. Send them out an email in which you ask them, what events do you visit? Which influencers do you follow? Are there any secret communities that I know about? And how do you make decisions in that line of space? By just like sending out those five emails, we got better intelligence, I swear, than if we would hire like a desktop researcher to do AKA market research in the field that they have not absolutely no idea. Well, well, obviously, I'm a big fan of customer research. I mean, us product people love going out and speaking to customers. And I absolutely agree that sometimes people, I think they kind of seem to get a little bit stuck inside their own heads a little bit, right? In the sense that maybe they've got industry expertise or Maybe they just think they know what they don't know, but they think they know it. And they're just kind of sitting there thinking that it's just a big old waste of time. And that's something that affects product people when they're kind of making and building the products and, and developing and, and improving the products. But I guess what we're saying is that us product management people aren't alone in this struggle. We've got people on the marketing side, on the sales side that are suffering from all the same things and having all of the same poor outcomes because of it. No, Jason, to be fair, I think that product managers are the best. Oh, shucks. Because just like assumption mapping and research methods, no, seriously, like the best part of science that I got for the book was from product managers. It was from Dr. Ilse Vanderberg. It was from Eugene Sigal. I wish I met you sooner so we could be working <laughs> together on mental models as well. Oh, I've got nothing to offer. Don't worry. <laughs> no, for the next edition. For the next edition, we will join forces. But like there were a couple of chapters, right, which were very difficult for me to write. So product was one of them. Customer discovery and early customer profile was one of them. And I mean, why were they so difficult for me to write is because I was always included in the conversation after we had to launch. And what launch means for the majority of people is just like, we need 500 beta users. Let's bring them on. Use whatever channels you possibly think you can. And let's do this. Let's go. Whereas in order to make these decisions with confidence and to secure your chances of winning and succeeding, you have to be included in the research prior to that, right? So if you do your homework, if you set up healthy dancers, you have a much better chance to actually succeeding. And I like literally annoy myself after talking about this for like 200 <laughs> times, but people are still not doing this and I don't know why. Well, let's not try and psychoanalyze people that we're not talking to, but I completely agree that it's still rather surprising that yeah in this day and age that people are still not but you know maybe that'll be something we can look into together for version two but let's talk about version one yes let's do it let's do it so you're in the final stages of putting out version one which is no doubt going to be a bestseller go to market strategist which is an actionable step-by-step -step handbook packed with tactics and strategies from leading go-to-market experts that will set up your launch for success it's almost as if i read that bit so why was it important, before we talk about the book, why was it important for you to write this book and why was it important for you to write it now? So listen, how you create a bestseller, you can create like the most niche, the most cringe Amazon category and it can still be a bestseller <laughs> somewhere. But I really hope that the metrics that I could be monitoring here is how many companies did we help to achieve product market fit and to build a sustainable business model? Because 
I don't know like where the majority of your listeners are from, but at least like in my reality, which is a European reality, we are testing product market fit and business model at the same time. And not only are we trying to get free users in, we also have to make some money, right? And with that comes decisions about business model and about pricing. And we make these decisions very poorly because there are a lot of biases and statistically, 95% of innovation will never survive. They will never cross the chasm. Why? Because not only the product could be bad, which is usually not the case, but there can be like gazillion reasons. And I don't think that marketing or sales or biz dev offers those answers individually. I do think that we have to join forces here with product, with UX, and with just like traditional enterprise sales, if we have to, not very fun stuff. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, I felt that this is the science that we have to write together, that it's interdisciplinary. But you could have just gone out and advocated for that and gone and consulted with people and made a lot of money doing that. So was it more the case that there were just too many companies out there that need helping that you just thought this was a way to get some of those off of your plate and kind of try and help at scale? Because I've spoken to a lot of people that have written books that really had that motivation. Was that yours? Absolutely not. So my impact metrics for this week um, is to change 100 lives. And I think I've done it already because I was working with a lot of startups. And you just see that like willingness to pay in the early stage is not very high, right? And this is not like the greatest segment to monetize. Had I been smart and greedy, I would work with corporates much more. But <laughs> I learned the most from just like this early stage stuff, because if you can make it there, boy, you could make it everywhere. It's so tough. Like you have fast iteration loop. And this has been like my core and passion from the beginning on. And I do believe in a little bit of a cyberpunk theory as well. So I'm a little bit anarchistic as a person. I do think that the best knowledge should not be gated. That's why I'm doing Udemy course with 70K people. I paid a lot of money in order to learn that. But I would just like to find another person in a freaking village from a freaking like odd country to build the next unicorn. That's my dream. That's my utilitarian dream. Well, hopefully once the book's out, they can start to go down that path and we'll have to go around hunting. Maybe together again, we can go on a tour. We can yeah, go and work and we could do that. Know, That'll be fun. We can go and you know do a road trip, try and find people all over the place. But before this interview, we chatted a little bit, sort of back and forth, and I think you yeah. put this on your website as well. You said you've spent a year researching the book. You've interviewed over a hundred people. You've written over one thousand five hundred pages. Now that's a big book, so I'm assuming that one thousand five hundred pages didn't make it into the final version. But how did you decide what to cut out? if that wasn't the case. Okay, there were three periods into evolution of the book. The first one was just like this outflow. So whatever I did in my career, like I was anecdotically taking stories and just like five years ago, we won like 2000 million with this company and yada, yada. And then I was like, hum, nobody cares. The second version <laughs> of the book was trying to be more scientific. And I kind of went into this weird narration of, okay, in order to demonstrate value proposition, you could be using this canvas. But this canvas is a little bit broken, so you might consider this canvas as well. But there is a third canvas that you should take for a spin. And that was an absolute mess in terms of progression. So a good book for me is a recipe, how to do something, and a bunch of actionable models that could actually change our businesses, right? 
So that's right now the third version of the book. And I was just like having probably maybe 30 or 40 test readers in the chapter and they dissect the shit out of the material. <laughs> I mean, it was so bad. They removed and completely like demolished one chapter. It was really harsh feedback. But I learned to take those punches because I know that they made one hell of a product at the end. And also a huge shout out and thanks to Laura. So my editor, she works at Content Director at Product Led Institute because that woman was fearless and I was freaking afraid of her for half a year. <laughs> she like tolerated no bullshit and also like language wise, you know, I'm not English native. So her polishing really helped tremendously with that. But um, this was my initial idea. If some of the best people in the field still find it useful, then hell yes, am I serving value. And the metric that I have here is insights per page. This is like the value metric that I'm tracing. Well, I'll have to get a pen out and start totting them up as I go through it once it actually comes out. But Challenge me. Challenge me. I will challenge you 100%. I'm also interested, maybe we chat offline about what your actual metric, what your score, what your target is. But I also have to ask a potentially more uncomfortable question. So you've interviewed over 100 people for this book. Yeah. Did they all get in? No. Or did you have to leave some poor, unfortunate people on the cutting room floor? And if you did, not who, but why? No, that was a really tough question and a really tough trade-off because you know, as you are incepting this science, as you have this idea, we could do this and that and that, as the concepts are being refined and progression is being made, some of the things no longer cut the chase, actually, like they are become obsolete a little bit. And even though that they are a good insights per se, they don't necessarily fit the narration, which is intended to provide good reader experience. So I had this big what the fuck moment in my book with target audience, right? At the beginning, I was like, yeah, I could be like a Nutella. This book could help everybody. But when I was writing examples, for example, you know, like marketing an app or an e-commerce or a marketplace is unlike doing enterprise sales or B2B. And selection of examples for the book became a freaking nightmare. Because you cannot be shaping good material by just like, this is the B2C example and this is the B2B example over there. <laughs> and then now choose, choose, your, choose your tribe, choose your family. So I made a very good piece of research by just like sending a book pitch to, I think, 50 people. 30 of them came back to me and I mapped who responded well, who responded like, okay, Maya, don't give up. And who was absolutely like, what the <laughs> fuck am I reading? <laughs> what is this? Like, why did you bother take half an hour of my day? So the outcomes of this research was that my target persona are technical founders, then multiple time founders, at least like second time founders, product managers, and more, let's say, enlightened growth experts who believe that some things exist apart from marketing. So that was the first piece of research. And after we aligned, just like the messaging and how the book was presenting, according to like the previous discovery, we found that like we can do one hell of a converting landing page. So after like more than 2000 visits of this landing page, this landing page still converts at 60% in signups, which is unseen of like with free premium and stuff like that. The usual conversion rate is around 30%, right? 50 is a very good number. 60 is freaking insane. 
And I do believe that having done this research that we refine the messaging and just like the value proposition to the audience that we could actually serve very well. Well, it's good to see you putting your money where your mouth is with the growth experience as well. You've actually managed yeah, to grow this way. Yep. Yeah, I needed feedback. <laughs> I needed feedback. Writing is a very lonely journey. I like people. Yeah, no, fair enough. Well, you know, maybe one day I'll like people too. But you told me before this that there's no official literature out there about go-to-market, just anecdotes and blurry concepts, and that traditional business science doesn't really cut the mustard. So this does beg the question that if that's true, and if there is no proper official literature out there, and it's all kind of just anecdotes and, and hearsay, what have people been doing up until now? And what are some of the weaknesses in that approach or the approaches that they've been taking? So I never said that there is no literature. I just said that it is very limited. So I do appreciate work of Michael J. Scott. He done tremendously good work for Harvard Innovation Lab. That was really good. Then just like the Lean Startup Movement, that was very good as well. And there are a bunch of podcasts like yours, like Lenny's, where practitioners are just like sharing their examples and you can grasp whatever is business model appropriate to you. So anecdotically, I think that we have been constructing this really nice, especially like with the product-led movement for SaaS founders. This has been extremely elevated. But what I was missing was this do one, two, three, four, five, a cookie cutter a recipe, how to get there most securely and to maximize your chances for winning, right? I do think that prior to the existing book that I think that it covers, I believe it covers all the necessary areas. So we have market research, we have early customer profile, we have product, the best I could, <laughs> pricing, which was another challenging one, but an interesting one. Then like growth models, that's my home. This is where I'm at. And just like how to scale this with a system and include smart positioning and messaging to this. And whereas we could read April Danford, for example, for positioning, right? And like with pricing, Patrick Campbell is amazing at this, like X um, profit well now pedal. I don't think that it was put together in a way that would create a progression that well. And why? I am able to claim this at the moment is because I have testing these models in the last few months with 50 companies and they freaking loved it. So it has been battle tested, if I can use military vocabulary on your podcast. Absolutely. We'll come back to the military stuff, actually, because I do have a couple of questions on it. Can't wait. Well, let's talk about that seven stage process that you have mapped out on the website. And it would be the easiest thing in the world for me to just go through that step by step and ask you a question about each one. So I'm not going to do that because, you know, I don't want to make my life easy. But you just touched on it like this step-by-step -step process and the idea that you really kind of wanted to pull everything together and make sure that people had a, a framework or a, almost like a, a set of steps that they could do. So is it a very linear process that people have to follow left to right or are there kind of little loops in there? Are there bits that they can skip? Like, do they have to do all of that? And how does that framework specifically then get them along the right path? It depends on your stage of development of the product, right? So if you already have a product and you are just like figuring out how to build a business model and pricing, you could start with the product as given and just like go to positioning, pricing and growth. That would be possible. But if you are just like incepting the model or just like researching which market to enter, like where to position it, where is your beachhead segment, where are you playing to win? 
I would start from the beginning, honestly, because those things come in just like a certain sequence, right? So when we are talking about the market, we are talking about how to identify opportunities, like how to research competitors and how to just like find this best segment, which is a beachhead segment in most cases, if you are not a marketplace or, and we can talk about beach segment later on, but I believe in winning a coast by coast as you are small and are preferably bootstrapping. Then when it comes to a like ideal customer profile, I just then call it early. Because at the beginning, there is no like this guy in the corporate that like would give you 2 million from a get-go because your product is so freaking amazing. You have to build your traction to there. And for me, early customer profile is the one that you can win in the next three to six months. So that's practically it. Product, I didn't go like too much into the tech. I was mainly playing around with value propositions and how to find product market fits. Whereas with pricing, I did stumble upon the fascinating concept of value metrics and just like how to create this minimal viable pricing. Because especially like in my reality, we are undercharging so badly for the tech products here in Europe. And we just have no idea how to price them. And I see a lot of problems down the pricing line. That is like literally the value of that for the majority of startups, at least in the early stage. Then like the fluffy positioning, messaging and branding, we did try to make a scientific take on this because you know how it is. We can at least follow the process, but I'm not like a huge believer that you should be spending like six months thinking about which animal are you and like, <laughs> doing 50 te templates. I just don't think that we have time for this. And then of course, like the grow channels where to grow your company. I do think that's a logical sequence. I wouldn't change it a lot apart from the fact that if you cannot change your product at the moment. You can always change your product. Anyone that tells you different is lying to you through their teeth and trying to get out of work. But you do talk in the intro to the book or on the website, and you also just mentioned it now, this idea about getting to product market fit, mm -hmm. which is obviously something that startups around the world are desperately trying to do right now. Maybe some of them think that they've already got there and they haven't really, but they just thought that they had. Maybe some of them have got there and then lost it again because it was a very fragile product market fit. But some people out there have said that product market fit is a somewhat fluffy, useless concept that can't really be measured and they somewhat doubt that it even exists. So without getting into holy wars or arguing so much about the specific definitions of individual words, how are you defining the general concept of product market fit? Um, let me just argue with you on a previous one uh, that sure. the product could always be changed. So one of the biases that I see a lot with technical founders is that product is own engineer. And somebody has to come in the firm and say, basta, you're not touching this anymore. We have to roll it out and see what happens and iterate after it goes out in the wild. You will not spend another six months building this in your office. We need to get it out. <laughs> so uh, hard cuts like this happen a lot when we are dealing with technical teams, especially if they have collected some sort of pre-seed money or something like that. They're just like, okay, now let's sit down and make it perfect. One year, goodbye, competition overcoming you from the left and right. It's not an ideal scenario. So this is why I'm being like a little bit strict about product development because the majority of tech founders that I work with oh, tend to overdo it and maybe hide behind this in order for them to avoid the fact that somebody would say that their baby is ugly, fear of rejections. <laughs> but it's important to do it. 
So when it comes to product market fit, I do see it a little bit different, right? In theory, product market fit is this boring intercept between like market segment and the product and aka that the product really fulfilled their needs and delivers value. But coming from a very bootstrap and very like business harsh reality, I did add the business model and willingness to the pay to the mix. Because one thing is that people say that they love it. The other thing is, will they pay for it? And then you have the question, can you capture enough value in order to build a sustainable business? So I was just working with one of the teams that I was preparing for a Y Combinator pitch last week. And we generated these 500 signups for their beta program for the pitch. And this week we started to pre-sell. And before product even existed, we have a MRR of 5K, which is amazing for a product that does not exist. Oh, yeah. It's amazing for some products that do exist. Yeah, sorry to learn this, but I said, like, you're not building this if you cannot sell this to like at least 50 companies. You just not worth your time. So just like in terms of validation, you know, we can also be a little bit more pragmatic here. And it's not as if I would be undercutting like the importance of really good and lovable product development. But look, I work in this reality when you have three to six months of lifeline and you have to make it or break it. So I'm trying to set up people for success. And yeah, this is how I see product market fit. Like what is mission critical to do in the next three to six months to survive? But one of the things that some companies try to do to survive in situations like that is they, especially in B2B, they kind of just try and sell to just about anyone that walks past the office. You know, they'll just sell to just any kind of remotely related segment, you know, people that they know, old colleagues, just to anyone, just to try and scattergun it and try and almost happen upon product market fit by I love this. just selling so many things and then like drawing a circle around some dots. I love this. But you talk in the book about the early customer profile. Now, I talk a lot when I chat to teams about ideal customer profiles, which is obviously maybe the later stage version of that. So yep. is early customer profile for you just a, a, I mean, I know that you talk about getting really tight, but is it just a super, super, super tight starting point? Or is it something a bit different from a traditional ICP, ideal customer profile concept? Let's totally talk about this because I think it's so important, especially like if the firm is also doing some consulting or service work or co-creation with a client, you can easily be absorbed into this weird internal agency situation when you no longer have the product strategy. And I'm just like working with a company like this that sells Aerotech. So this is like an online learning platform. And we just had this conversation like yesterday. A lady came and asked us, I will buy this if we give her a big discount. I was like, okay, is she an influencer? Is she somebody who will give you like a flashy testimonial? And she said, no, this is somebody who's thinking about like just starting an online course. And I was like, Veronica, no, this is a vampire client. She will suck the life out of you. You will not enjoy working with her. It's not coherent with your product strategy. And it's just a no-no. You have the prerogative to say no. And I do think that like product vision is so important here because you are in control as well. Of course, you have market realities to the mix. So who can you objectively be selling to in the life period that you have? So maybe you cannot sell to freaking Elon Musk. Maybe you can sell <laughs> to your body from accounting. But to create like product market fit and just like making sure that you have enough of those people 
that like share a certain characteristic to create repeatable business system becomes mission critical. And after you ran out of your family and friends and whatever suckers that will buy for you because you have a nice looking <laughs> website, you need to create a repeatable business and you are not done with this iteration until you are done. So that's an extremely important point. And I'm thank you. I thank you so much for bringing it out because it doesn't mean like that we should be discounting our services for 90% in order to make a sales at all costs. Like we still have to be strategic and sustainable about this. But strategic and sustainable sounds hard for some founders, right? Because especially in a situation where maybe they've got a shit hot salesperson that could you know, basically sell anything to anyone. It's almost easier for them if we go back to that survival stage that you were talking about, like they yeah. they don't have much runway, they need to get some more money in, they need to get some more revenue. Maybe they even start hiding some of that service revenue as ARR because they think that that's a good thing to do. And I'm sure that comes back to bite them at some point. Yeah, that comes across all the time, yeah. Yeah, but like, it's so much easier in that situation to ignore idealistic sounding strategic stuff and just say, well, our strategy is just to make loads of money. So how do you combat that type of mentality when you're dealing with the types of people that you're dealing with? Where people are in danger, they have a tunnel vision, right? They are in the survival mode. It's fight or flight. And we have very weird reactions also physically when it comes to this. So I do believe that it's very important to narrow down the objective. And right now, like with a couple of my teams that we have, Okay, your goal in this quarter is to close five partners. A qualification of the partner needs to be this and that and that. Now, I don't care what you do, but this is what you're doing this quarter, right? So whereas you are not being permissive about the objective and you are not compromising for quality, you are leaving the path relatively open. And this is something that I think it's a founder's job because it, it can also happen with like LinkedIn shitposting, right? So you can kind <laughs> of a lot of attention. Yeah, you, you don't do this, but a lot of people are <laughs> doing this. But you can like harvest a lot of attention on just like likes of just like putting yourself with a cat photo on the platform, right? That could perfectly happen. But will you do it? No, because you're an intelligent individual and I don't think that it attracts the right type of event, um, attention. So it's your job as a leader to just like make sure that we are not doing crazy shit. If we need money desperately, sure. I would freaking go and walk other people's dogs. I like dogs. <laughs> so there are a lot of ways how to make money. But if that's like really distracting you from your core product development, and this is not a company that you would like to build, it's, you have a prerogative to say no. Absolutely. But another thing you talk about, and you mentioned earlier as well, was this idea that people, you know, if they want to make money, they need to charge money. They need to price or set a price for their solution. And you've said earlier, and we chatted before about how people are probably just too cheap. Yeah. They're not pricing their solutions effectively, which means that they're leaving money on the table. All the time. And of course, then that's going to have a knock-on effect on the revenue that they're going to be generating for, and effectively the runway that they're going to have off the back of that. Now, Obviously, pricing is a complicated topic, but how do you generally advise people get their prices up or at least consider getting their prices up rather than just getting a bit maybe lacking confidence in their solution, their product, or lacking confidence to just put a decent price on their solution? 
Yeah, Jason, let's just talk about a couple of use cases right here. Before you launch, you have to do willingness to pay research. Willingness to pay research is not how much would you pay for it because it's not your client's freaking job to do the pricing. It's your <laughs> job to do the pricing. It's literally, okay, this is a nail polish. Would you pay 10 euros for it? Would you pay 12 euros for this? Would you pay 15 euros for this? Why wouldn't you pay 20? So it's all about testing, iteration, and in the majority GTM realities, we are price ranging from 20 to 30% plus minus of our competitors. So that's our wiggle room. This is the space that we can play with because there is always a freaking solution if there is a burning problem and it can't be an Excel sheet which doesn't cost them shit. So <laughs> in terms of competitive positioning, we have to play within their existing mind space. That's the kind of the first reality. And we have to play around with a couple of pricing rates before calling it this software costs 94 euros per week. And let's see what happens. That was a cringe number. That was a weird example. But nevertheless, <laughs> it's not done in a way that you would be like copying the competitors per se. You have a lot of chance to learn that on customer interviews, sometimes even on surveys or pre-sales. What I do with my consulting offers, for example, is that each time that I'm sending out a new offer, I'm trying to lift price for 10%. And you can outprice yourself from the market. That's, of course, possible. But if more than 70% of your offers are being rejected, you are leaving the money on the table. This is what it is. So you should always be challenging yourself how to raise the prices and review this at least once a quarter. And what else is really true is you are innovating on the product. It provides more value, right? So whenever you have like a feature launch or something which is radically better, you have a chance to revamp the packages and just like relaunching your pricing strategy per se. And I think that people are very afraid of what like the existing customers will think about this. Will they find this fair? will experience like a lot of churn or something like that. But listen, you can still like offer them to keep an existing deal for some time, explain them in a civil manner that this is like a different level of the service and this is this and why and that where we're doing this. Or just like make sure that you are providing this offer for differentiated packages for the new customers if you don't want to deal with all this shit. But pricing is really not set it and forget it project. It's an ongoing effort. And I absolutely love pricing work, whereas I'm trying to discount discounts like a plague. Well, that's the thing, I think, with pricing as well. What I've seen is sales teams going out there basically almost offering a discount before they've even said the price, just you know, almost like preemptively discounting. It's terrible. Like, I can understand the mindset of doing that because again if you're not confident in your pricing or if you think that people are going to push back or if you think there's a cheaper provider out there that you're often losing to for example that can be a really natural thing for you to want to do as a seller but again you're just leaving money on the table right exactly and i think that like people are i don't know if it is imposter syndrome or it's just a lack of self-confidence but you know how i close what is my usual sales pitch if your investment is not going to get you at least one new client, then everything that we did will go to shit. How confident are we that we will get at least one new client from making this program happen? So that's just like a different type of framing, right? After you see that you can provide a lot of value at the beginning, okay, you do it, what you can operate with based on a little bit of research. But after you see other people like 
getting rich because of you, like getting so much value out of your product, you should, it's your duty to capture at least 20 to 30% of this added value created for your ecosystem. This is your duty. You have the right to do this. Well, speaking of duty, another thing that you talked about before this was, and in fact, again, on the website is how you used military strategy and battle-tested frameworks to, to kind of frame the work that you're doing. Now, I've gotten in trouble before for quote-unquote militaristic language, but... I'm a woman. I probably won't. <laughs> but what inspiration have you taken from military thinking in pulling these frameworks together? Listen, let's be very realistic. So military strategy is like thousands of years older than business strategy. And business strategy is... Oh, the art of war, right? Starting with, but not limited to, and <laughs> Romans did some amazing stuff as well. Hashtag Julius Caesar. But nevertheless, <laughs> look, business literature developed like 200, 300 years ago, right? And it was done like how economics are run, how businesses are run on really larger scale. So uh, it has a very short history of just like making sure like what's up with our fast-paced world. But where I found a wonderful, just theoretical frameworks for how we are reacting in GTN is actually like special ops. Because what we are doing here is that we are David against Goliath, right? So we are like small and we are so very scarce in resources, but we can run fast and we can hide fast. <laughs> so <laughs> speed is our essence, agility is as too. As well as you are like fighting with a much larger competitor, which is hacking like a freaking tank, it will take them forever to turn around. Well, where they will turn around, you will be done. So um, I did take a lot of inspiration from just like how to win using the relatively small sources with scarce resources, right? So force is our team. So we need to have like a very competent head selecting team that absolutely delivers and share the same purpose. Then we have to ask past and we have to do things. We have to be hyper transparent. We have to hyper communicate. We have to have fast feedback loops. And it's just like all about this clarity of a very simple plan, fast execution, and just like making sure that we know how to get this better in the next round, because we might go once on this journey. And these are like the experimentation loops. These are the feedback loops that we are getting. But as long as we are learning from it and getting better, we are winning. And one day we will get there. Well, fingers crossed. Hopefully we don't get stuck in the mud. So where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about the book? Find out when, well, actually, before we even ask that, what is the release date for the book for the record? 15th of November, if I survive. <laughs> no, seriously, I will survive. I can't wait. Like I'm counting down the days. It will be so freaking exciting. And I'm looking forward to launching on Amazon as well on gtmstrategies.com. All the experts featuring the book um, are a part of the launch, which I'm very happy to share this launch with them because it's a science that we have written together. And I'm just like so excited to bring this one out because I've been working so hard for, on it for a year. I've been testing it on the road, so I know that it's not going to be like a disaster or something like that. But I would love to just like see how it is accepted by people. So every time that you read a chapter or two from me, just hit me a line on LinkedIn or on email and we can totally talk. I'm a sucker for feedback. <laughs> That's what I love. Got to do that customer research. Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and uh, hopefully some people will wander in your direction 
once they've read a few chapters and start pinging you and lighting you up like a Christmas tree. Well, that's been a fantastic chat, going deep into some important growth-related topics. So obviously, wish you the best of luck with the book launch. I'll be watching closely to see what happens. Uh, Obviously, we'll stay in touch. But as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much, Jason. You're a star. Yeah, definitely. And just tell me one last thing. When are you coming to my podcast, huh? GTM Strategies. When are you coming as a guest? Whenever you want me, I will be there. Just let me Christmas know. Christmas episode. I'm... Let's do a Christmas episode Let's together. Do. I'll, I'll, I'll wear my hat. But love it. Thank you so much for listening and good luck going to market. Ciao. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.